Welcome to Dream Business Radio, the place to create your dream business now. Get ready for some inspiration, some encouragement, some proven business building strategies, and a couple of new ideas that you haven't even thought of. It's time to leave slow and steady as she goes to the other entrepreneurs, because this program is all about speed and fast results. And now, broadcasting from his floating home somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, the dream business coach himself, Jim Palmer. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Captain Jim Palmer, and I am the Dream Business Coach, coming to you again from my temporary land home in, in Pennsylvania. And I have a wonderful guest today, just a rock star entrepreneur. Steve Cahan has successfully helped to grow six startup companies from early stage development to going public and being sold, resulting in more than $4.5 billion in shareholder value. Steve's inspirational seven keys to the C-suite enables professionals to put their careers on a fast track and succeed at startups. And what entrepreneurs dream about, whether whether or not they say it out loud, is the billion-dollar exit. I know a lot of people I work want a million-dollar exit, but a billion-dollar exit, that's amazing. And you know, the reality is that the entrepreneurial home runs are very rare. And um, so when, when Steve's information came across my desk, I knew I wanted to get him on Dream Business Radio to inspire all of you. So Steve, how are you doing today? I am great. Good to be with you, Jim. Thank you. I've I've interviewed, I mean, this is uh, episode 528, I think. I've interviewed a lot of people. Um, you know, my, my general audience are entrepreneurs, small business owners, definitely had some uh, multiple seven-figure people, but a 1.4 billion. I, you may have the the title as the yeah. as the best, the biggest the biggest success there. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you very much. What was that journey like? I mean, um, did you you know a lot of the people I interview they they go to college, they get a degree in you know social studies or math, and then they be, go become an entrepreneur, <laughs> or they get a, a lawyer degree and become an engineer. It's kind of crazy. What was your journey like? Well, the journey for me was like so many people when they're growing up. I remember my parents talking to me and saying, Steve, uh, get your degree, go to work for a large corporation, work hard, they'll take care of you. And someday uh, you'll have a gold watch and a great career. And uh, what I learned quickly was I was staring at a pile of claims that I needed to process that day early in my career looking at my bank statement and there was about $50 in my account and the student loans were grabbing a hold of my paycheck. And I was wondering how on earth would I ever get ahead? And so I asked myself a important question many, many years ago. And that was, how could I earn a great living and love the work I do? And I realized that it would be moving into a much more of an entrepreneurial role at startup companies. I made that jump and quite frankly, I've never looked back. So did you have any, I mean, it's interesting how many people become small business owners and they obviously know what a small business is, but some people don't haven't even heard the word entrepreneur before, but they, you know, whether they had a parent or grandparent kind of show them the way, or at least you know, because that's ever that's a lot of people's story. Go go to college, get your gold watch after forty years or something like that. And um, it, it's I don't want to get on this rabbit hole, but it's just one of my pet peeves that a lot so many schools don't even teach that there is an alternative. You've got a skill and a talent, start a business. So how did how did that come to you? And and what age did that come to you? 
that came to me early on. It was about a year and a half into working at my first job. And I just knew that sort of the big bureaucratic type of organization where you're typically responsible for a very limited amount of uh, work within a specific silo with bosses who uh, just absolutely would rather do anything than coach you or, or go through and give you a uh, their a, a annual review that 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 just wasn't uh, for me right and so what I wanted was and I, uh, just the the opportunity to kind of be almost in an environment in which I would describe where it's almost like the last frontier for outlaws sort of a place where uh, people can just go and pursue their dreams and uh, and where nonconformists can live create and sell their ideas and for me I, I just i wanted to be involved in that it's a place of startups anyways i found where i could be the rough riding rebel running circles around the slow moving bureaucratic large organizations so is, it was really a mindset yeah it's so funny because i've i've been an entrepreneur for a long time and before that i worked for entrepreneurs i never really worked for a large corporation and then um be, well, for a few years, and this was before we moved on the boat, so probably about seven, eight years ago, I was. they asked me to be on this board for a local nonprofit I was part of. And I'm like, we. I go to these board meetings, Steve. I felt like such a fish out of water. I'm like, they deliberated for like half an hour. Is it, should we say it's your or it is you? I mean, seriously, the smallest details were just, and I'm like, oh, my, in my head, I'm like, I can go start a business in less time than we rework one word on the mission statement. So it's pretty frustrating. Um, so you have, so you have quite a track record. So what was the first business that you started? Well, really what, what I did is my, my first business was, uh, was really less about what I started. And a lot of people think when they think of startups, they think of the business that they need to start. What I really looked for were companies around three, four, five million in size that were small, um, where the founders got it to a certain point, but really had no idea on how to scale it and take it forward. And so uh, initially I made all the mistakes in the world, but over time I came to learn uh, how to differentiate a startup that has a good story versus a startup that has both a good story as well as a really good chance to succeed. And so I try to pick those companies that were, that, that had the potential to be uh, winners and to win big. And then uh, just, I've been blessed to have worked with a lot of other great people as well. And, uh, and, and great things have come out of that. That's great. I want to ask you about your book, High Velocity Digital Marketing, but um, you also have a book, Be a Startup Superstar. Um, or, or is that new? I couldn't. Is that new or has that been out? Yeah. For a while? So Be a Startup Superstar came out uh, a few years ago. It actually got up into the top 10 on Amazon business books. And that was uh, actually written for uh, young professionals and uh, and and those sort of graduating college. And it was all about why you would want to choose a startup uh, over a large corporation, where you might find uh, great startup jobs. Uh, and then once you get to a startup, 
then uh, the, as you mentioned, the keys to the C-suite. So, so uh, sort of what I grouped was uh, 32 actions, attitudes, and behaviors that I've uh, had or I've uh, witnessed other entrepreneurs have to achieve great success. And then my new book, uh, High Velocity Digital Marketing, uh, is uh, about ready to come out. And actually, I've been told it will launch on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Is that right? Wow. That, that is huge. Congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, the, um, so what do you think, I mean, as far as a startup superstar, you know, I've been blessed with some success myself and I've been coaching for, for about 13 years. And it's interesting to me that um, no matter what level you're at, whether you're doing six figures or a million dollars, half a million dollars, everybody's got some kind of what I call head trash or, you know, <laughs> imposter syndrome uh, in some way, shape or form lacking the confidence. Is that, is that something you worked on yourself? Did you, did you work with, uh, some of your clients on that as far I, as the know, confidence? I think, I think that, uh, that there's a fine line between, uh, confidence and, uh, sort of, uh, just the lack thereof. And I think that you certainly are confident that, that you could, succeed but you're never really sure right i mean no no matter what anybody will tell you at least i found that that you could have all the confidence in the world but the, the world uh, doesn't exist in black and whites it exists in shades of gray and outcomes are are usually uncertain but there are some things i think that uh that i've seen uh, entrepreneurs who are super successful have uh, for example they, they, they realize that there's no substitute for hard work, that there's only one way to the top and that's through hard work and, and there's no substitute for rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty and, and, and frequently. I think that uh, successful entrepreneurs regularly challenge the status quo, right? And so we've all heard the old sayings, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or that's the way we always done things around here. Mm -hmm. And that's because the status quo is strong and it represents a bias that can permeate the culture of a company for keeping in place the current state of affairs. It's comfortable, it's predictable, some perceive as less risky, but growth requires change. And I think every person or organization that wants to become great at some point had to challenge the status quo. And I think if I was just to uh, uh, put a bow on it and add a third, uh, third characteristic, is that uh, successful executives really are good at summonsing the courage to make tough decisions. They're daring enough to make the tough call. They, they have the guts to make unpopular decisions and strong leaders are able to quickly assess the situation and decide when others stand idle. And that's because a lot of people fear about making the wrong decision because they're not cut and dried. Uh, but, uh, but I think that uh, the difficult part of making a decision is having the courage to know that you might be wrong when the outcome is unclear, but deciding anyways. Wow, that's great. You, you practically read the first few pages of my sixth book, which was titled Decide. <laughs> 
you know, <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, I, I invented this word because I'm a believer. You make a decision, yes or no, but not maybe. And I said, uh, I invented a place called Squishyville, which is where, oh, I don't know. We're just going to think about it. We'll put it on the back burners. And Squishyville is where opportunity goes to die. <laughs> so the ability to make a, a good decision based on whatever you know information you have, I think that is critical as well. I'm fascinated as I uh, started the uh, interview, Steve, about the $1.4 billion exit. That was with a uh, cyber security firm, correct? Yeah, it was a company with a funny name uh, by the name of Thycotic. And and it, it was interesting because when I started there, actually the, the company was uh, at 5 million in annual revenue and the odds were stacked against us. Uh, they had just received venture capital investment and uh, it was sort of like a, uh, the, the number five player in a, a part of the cybersecurity market that was really up and coming. But uh, revenue had flatlined for a couple of quarters. We had a fraction of the staff and budget of some of our bigger, better funded competitors. And so the, 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 the outlook was unclear. And we restored revenue growth that very next quarter. We hit our numbers every quarter for five years and then uh, ultimately were acquired for 1.4 billion uh, about this time last year. Wow. You know, it's interesting cybersecurity. I mean, it seems like every week somebody's reporting our our ultra secure system got hacked and you know millions of people have their information out there now i'm guessing it's those are the stories we hear it's like you, you never hear all the planes that took off and landed successfully but so i'm sure cybersecurity firms you know like the one uh, you worked at and some others they do really good work but man there's just no such thing as a sure thing in that ever changing space no, there's not. And what we did was kind of an interesting thing, which was password security, but it wasn't passwords for people, is that it turns out that every part of an organization's infrastructure, operating systems, databases, applications, et cetera, have passwords. And if those passwords get in the hands of the bad guys, then they have the keys to the kingdom. And so it, it was, uh, but at that time, one of the things that I found out that was an aha moment that I asked our founders, uh, said, who is it that we're selling to? And they said, gee, Steve, of course, uh, we're cybersecurity. We sell to uh, the chief information security officer, CISOs. And I started interviewing our customers as well as potential customers. And I found out that that wasn't true. So here was a company that was 5 million. It really didn't know that its customers actually were IT admins, mm. sort of those techies in the trenches that wear multiple hats. And really when we started uh, uh, focusing on what they wanted and needed, which was in different than what the CISOs wanted, that's when we were able to achieve that aha moment and uh and then succeed at at the next level that's so important um you know i started i studied uh, direct response copywriting under dan kennedy and, and gary halbert and a few others and it's it's they both they both preach the who is so much more important than the what and how and everything you have to be speaking to the right people and i don't just mean speaking in sales capacity you're marketing your message it needs to be going to the person making the buying decision what a what a 
what a revelation for, for you to figure that out. Well, and it's so important because if you think about a high velocity digital marketing approach, imagine if I would have been trying to market online to those those IT security people, right? I, I, we wouldn't have been successful. And the messaging back to the IT admins is very different. So you've got to be where the IT admins hang out online and they are looking for things, as I mentioned, that are different. For example, they wear multiple hats. They, uh, they, they want like super simplicity. They're going to scan headlines. Uh, they they don't want to work with consultancies. They're never going to read an analyst report. They're they're they'll listen to what their peers say, and so uh, so for example, when we decided we wanted to do a cybersecurity podcast, rather than us starting with an trying to build an audience from scratch, we partnered with an organization that was the biggest online uh, a university for IT admins. And so literally in six weeks, uh, because we uh, did that partnership, we launched a cybersecurity podcast that became uh, one of the most popular around the globe in six weeks time, right? Because we focused on those buyers, we focused on where those IT admins already were. And, uh, and, and as a result, uh, it was widely uh, listened to, and oh, we always had strong calls to action, which then ultimately became leads for our solutions. Fantastic. I mean, you borrowed, some, you borrowed somebody else's audience that had already been gathered. It's pretty smart. Um, so you, we've been talking about, um, you have a new book coming out, High Velocity Digital Marketing. Um, talk a little bit about why you wrote that book and, and what, uh, what will our readers learn? The reason why I wrote it is that I read a McKinsey survey that said 83% of CEOs expect their marketing to drive most of their company's growth. And yet the Harvard Business Review said that 80% of the CEOs are dissatisfied with the return on their marketing investment. And part of the reason why uh, they are dissatisfied and why many sales and marketing leaders feel overwhelmed by revenue expectations they can't meet is because the way in which people buy has totally changed. So now buyers rely on digital content to make purchase decisions. 67% uh, of buyers, according to Gartner Group, prefer not to even interact with a sales representative as their primary source of info, right? And so what that means is, and think about it in your own life, if you're gonna go buy a car, you're probably not gonna walk into 10 different dealerships to work with 10 different sales representatives to figure out the car you wanna buy. You're gonna get online, you're gonna go do your research, or you might go build the car, right? You'll, you'll know what it should be priced at, you'll read reviews, and that's how people buy, right? And so that change uh, in the buying process, a new level of information parity has very much changed the way in which companies need to interact with buyers to influence them towards their products and services. And so high velocity digital marketing is all about teaching and it's very much a how-to. I don't like theoretical books, right? I like books where I could read it, I could I get information I could put to use that very day. And so it really teaches uh, uh, organizations how to be great online, to drive revenue growth, 
and to do it at reasonable cost. That's wonderful. So chapter one, laser focus, your target audience. We slightly touched on that with the who. Chapter two is building content that buyers need now. So are you suggesting that companies, um, is it always things for sale, but we kind of just had a conversation where it really is content marketing is really about education, <clears throat> educating be, the consumer. Yeah, it could be about education. It could be helping them to consider your solution. It could be about helping them to evaluate really the content could apply anywhere in a buyer's journey. But like, if you go back to that example, so I always was constantly speaking with our customers, which uh, a lot of organizations don't do enough of, particularly in the era of remote work. And one of the things that I learned was if you asked an IT admin or even a CISO uh, back for Psychotic and, and asked them this question, which was, how many of those privileged passwords does your company have? And because infrastructures are so complex, like 100% of them had no idea. So you can't manage or secure those passwords if you don't even know what you have. So one of the parts of our product that you would pay for was a discovery portion. And so I decided that we would, we would make that portion of the product available for free. So we would uh, enable companies to discover the passwords that they had. We'd give them an automatically generated beautiful report that would tell them about what they had, the risks associated with it, what they should do about it. We gave them a grade like they were in university, A through F. And because we collected information about their size of company, their industry, their geography, we were able to then send information the very next day via email, which got people in the habit of opening up uh, emails. Uh, to give them a report of how they compared versus their peers, which is like information that people really want to know. And so that's an example, just one of many of great content of which we generated a tremendous amount of leads because it was, it was information that captured the attention and imagination of our buyers in a way that they were willing to give up their email address and and name and company name, phone number, and do things, give up that information online when you know people never want to give that information because they don't want to get hounded, and rightfully so, right? And so that content is is everything to digital marketing. It sure is. Um, chapter four is creating a high performing website which is no small question with five or six minutes left, but what is a high-performing website? A high-performing website, there's a lot that goes into it, but if I was going to define it, to me, uh, it is a website in which you are constantly growing uh, visitors to uh, month over month, quarter over quarter, and so on, but you have a at least a 5% visitor to lead conversion rate, right? And so for us, we know that buyers are, they're educating online, but at the end of the day, if you're just simply educating and not capturing uh, leads or uh, converting via e-commerce, uh, then your website is not performing. And I put out a number of metrics that uh, that make up a fully high-performing website, but 
Uh, for me, it's, it's all about uh, conversion into leads and then uh, ultimately starting that process into pipeline and then revenue. Great answer. I'm going to, I'm going to seek another, another concise uh, chapter six, creating a high velocity funnel. It's interesting. You know, I kind of know Russell Brunson a little bit, but there's a lot funnels, almost like one of those Kleenex words. It's almost like very generic. What is a high velocity funnel to you, Steve? A high velocity funnel is all about, it's, it's super simple. So the, the quicker you convert digital content-based leads into paying customers, the more successful your business. And so time is money and the single metric that reveals the most about time and money is velocity. And so velocity through the funnel, when someone becomes a lead to someone becomes a, is in your pipeline or an opportunity and ultimately hopefully becomes a customer, the velocity uh, of which it's it's commonly overlooked and rarely managed. So high velocity uh, digital marketing funnel focuses in on the metrics associated with how fast you're bringing in money. It looks at how quickly you move leads through your pipeline and how much revenue customers provide over a given period. Very good. Uh, last question, because I know you've, I mean, you've uh, been pretty busy for a number of decades and you have the big buyout. My first question, I'll, actually, I'll share this. When um, someone on your staff reached out and said, you just, you just had a uh, $1.4 billion exit. What's he want to be on my podcast for? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and it was a serious question. Um, so what do you say to those people who are just like working nonstop all the time? Like talk a little bit about uh, fulfillment, success, and any big takeaways from what you've done so far? Well, I, I uh, would say, would say this is one of the takeaways and why I prefer startups is it's a funny thing, you know, you could work hard and a lot of people do and they have their base salary, they have their bonus, right? And, and, and it's great and hopefully it goes up over time. But a funny thing happens, you, you get married, you buy cars, you go on vacations, you get a house and like you spend pretty much in line with the more money you take in. But the thing that sort of enables you to break out, at least in my view, are those stock options. And that's what partly what I love about startups. So if you could pick the right startup, get uh, stock options, and then work your tail off and be a part of helping that company grow, I, th I think you could really break out. And then for those that are concerned that if they work at a startup, that like they're gonna have no time or work-life balance, I found that if you just block out time on your calendar and you protect your calendar and put in time to be at home and have dinner or to go to a kid's uh, events or whatever that might be, maybe it's just time to think strategically or to work out at lunch so that your calendar doesn't overwhelm you and you could sort of have that right balance along the way, you could have the best of all worlds. Yeah. Uh, a hero of mine, Zig Ziglar, used to say, "You can't have success at work if you're if you're unsuccessful at home." So, <laughs> it really is that balance. Um, Steve, what a what a pleasure to meet you, and thank you so much for for the wisdom and, and sharing. And uh, really great congratulations on the on the book and everything. Where do you want people to uh, 
get that book because this, but you and I are interviewing this, this will be about a month from now. So I'm sure the book will be out where, uh, where do you want them to go to get that? Yeah, both books, Be a Startup Superstar or High Velocity Digital Marketing, they're available on Amazon, wherever books are sold online. And people could reach me at my website at BeAStartupSuperstar.com. BeAStartupSuperstar.com. Steve, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure having you on Dream Business Radio. Thank you, Jim. Hey, folks, that wraps up this very special interview with Steve Cahan. And um, I highly suggest you connect with him and uh, learn from him. We just kind of scratch the surface here, which is kind of what we do in, in our limited time. Uh, you can connect with me at getjimpalmer.com. If you're interested in the Dream Business Mastermind, that is dreambizcoaching, dreambizcoaching.com. But until this time next week, another fantastic interview. I am Captain Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach, and you take good care. Now it's time to go implement what you've learned. Great ideas are nice, but results only happen through action and implementation. So stay focused. Kick all distractions to the curb. Sleep a little less if you have to. And create your dream business now so you too can live your dream lifestyle. To learn about building your dream business, join Jim's free Dream Business Facebook community at dreambizgroup.com. That's dreambizgroup.com. <laughs> See you next week for more Dream Business Radio.